0: the quagmire in Afghanistan, and way too early election predictions today on Vince and Jason Save the Nation. Hey, welcome to Vince
1: and Jason Save the Nation. I'm Vince Connays alongside my friend Jason Nichols, part of a conversation that we have three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, where we try and solve all of the world's problems in <laughs> just, I don't know, a short hour. Uh, I think we can do it. Jason Nichols, what do you have on the agenda today?
0: Well, today we have a very special guest, a Republican strategist, Rina Shah is joining us today. Uh, and I'm really excited about this conversation. I always like making a Democrat sandwich where you know you have two Republicans and, and me in the middle. But uh, this is actually one of my favorite Republicans. We actually met um, on another program that will probably neither one of us will ever go on again. Um, and, uh, I, I think we really hit it off and we really had some, some good conversation. So I think we can extend that here on the best show you will find anywhere. Vince and Jason, save the nation. Rena Shah, how you doing?
2: Hey, Jason. Thanks for that really (sighs) kind welcome. My gosh. Uh, you didn't mention though. I mean, look, we're both married with kids, I believe, Uh, but I slid into your DMS pretty quick and was like, so sorry about (laughs) acting a fool. So I'm just glad to
0: (sighs) Nah, you did. You did not act a fool, and you also made me feel uh, blush a little bit by saying you slid in my DMs. I'm just gonna keep it there. We're gonna keep everything out. We're gonna cut that, and I'm gonna send it to all my friends and be like, "Yeah, I still have it. I'm still popping. You know what I mean? I'm still popular out here.
2: We had a good time, though. I mean, that's the thing, right? Don't you slide into people's yeah. DMs when you have a good time professionally too?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Um. So I I wanted to um, ask you, I mean, we've been looking at Afghanistan these last couple of days. um, And, you know, there's a lot of details we could go into. Vince and I had a long conversation about it um, on our Monday show. And I kind of wanted to get just your kind of background views on it, what you're thinking about in terms of foreign policy and where we should go from here.
2: Yeah, that's a loaded question. I I don't know if your your listeners or you have viewers who can see me, but I, I would sometimes get mistaken for looking Afghani, looking Saudi Arabian. My ancestry is actually from India, but the way um, the migration pattern was, I've studied this about my family. I think we actually have ancestry from Afghanistan, um, even out to Iran. My, my dad's uh, mother had, had very light skin and hazel eyes. And so I've had uh, folks I've met from, from that region say to me, you, you look like us. And I'm like, well, all of that over there. <laughs> so, so. I say this, I say this to say, it's tough to see these images. I've, I've had the great pleasure of visiting the MENA region many times. I've had clients in that region. Um... And definitely Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, the toughest countries to talk about intelligently when you are an, a, a millennial, a geriatric millennial like I am. But, but these things have been going on I mean, 20 years. That, I, I'm not even 40 yet. So this is this is a, a tough subject, even if you find yourself talking foreign affairs all the time like I do. I'm over at Al Jazeera Media Network quite a bit uh, talking about the issues that, that plague the region and, and our role in the world and really what American lawmakers are doing. And I think I'll say this over the past few days, one thing has been at the front of my consciousness, and I'd I'd love to hear what you guys have to say, and and really maybe go deeper on this too, is that I think there was such a lack of congressional oversight on what has been happening for two decades in Afghanistan. I think there's tons of blame to go around. And and it's been said many a time also in the past uh, 48 hours is that Gosh, it's so easy to start a war, but how very hard is it to end one? So my, my real feeling about the entirety of the situation is I'm looking at this, this symmetry and I'm feeling some kind of way because I see people that look like my family members. But I also know what we did, what we as Americans did. I'm, I'm born and raised on American soil. I always say am as American as apple pie. Um, but it doesn't mean I can't look at those women and children and, and men over there and say, what have we done as Americans trying to force democracy down their throats? Uh, I'm a pro-democracy activist I make no, and, and, I really just do not hide that these days. It's been said also many a time that many of us never Trumpers went and became pro-democracy folks. Um, but, but you know, that's that's not to say you know, we have flaws in how we do things around the world, how we promote democracy around the world. I used to remember um, great speeches by Rand Paul and his father talking about nation building abroad. Now, I come from the rural parts of southern West Virginia, like the real holler. And um, I see a lot of suffering of my fellow Americans around me that something like $2 trillion would have really made a huge difference. And so I'll leave it at that because this is such a loaded question, but I definitely still have goosebumps this many days later. I mean, this is, I don't know when these goosebumps are gonna go away. I don't know. You
0: yeah. know, it, uh, go ahead, Vince, I'm sorry.
1: Well, I'm just thinking about, you know, Jason, when you and I talked on Monday about this in advance, it was in advance of uh, Joe Biden's speech to the nation. He finally he came out and he uh, made some remarks on Monday. Uh, And when he did, he, I thought, gave the entire thing a false frame. He suggested that this was about whether or not we stay or whether or not we go and that, hey, what my hands are tied. I got to go. That's really if those are the two options, that's the one I'm taking. But the reality was that the American public wanted to go. The surveys on this were really clear. The majority of Americans, 70 percent, just as recently as May, wanted to get out of Afghanistan. They wanted to see this long war 20 years end uh, and come to a conclusion. It was the way that it was done. And what I've noticed in the media discourse, as so often happens with major events, but especially with this one, is that it seems to be that there's a lot of very um, blunt thinking about all of this. We should have never gone in. We should still be there. No, this is a complicated issue. We were attacked on 9-11 by Al-Qaeda We went to where they were being uh, kept in safe haven in Afghanistan. That makes a lot of sense. There was almost unanimous support in the Congress to do that. Uh, Here's the problem. The nature of the legislation that was passed was boundless. And the only person who ended up voting against it was Barbara Lee. And that looks wise in retrospect. But again, I, I support to this day. I did as a kid. I mean, I was young. I was in high school at the time but I do now, I support going in just to go after the guys who hit us so hard. But once we chased them into Pakistan, we should have been been honest about what was happening.
2: Well, that's right. That's it right there, isn't it? We can't talk about Afghanistan without talking about Pakistan. Like that is missing from this entire national conversation is what Pakistan's current desire is and what role it currently plays. I mean, it's just shocking to me that Prime Minister Imran Khan, like (laughs) the guy is probably sitting back kind of happy right now because Pakistan is not being discussed.
0: Yeah. And I mean, it's for that matter. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I I have a a couple of views um, based on what, what you guys said. And I think um, I listened to someone who I have disagreements with sometimes, but I think he was spot on and I was listening to Lawrence O'Donnell and Lawrence O'Donnell gave probably the best monologue I've ever heard him give, maybe the best one I've heard in cable news. Um, First, the first thing he dispelled was when all these people are making these, you know, comparisons to our exit from Afghanistan uh, to the exit from Vietnam or making, you know, comparisons, one-to-one comparisons, which I think one-to-one comparisons are always, almost always flawed. But, there are always a different set of circumstances. And when you look at, you know, the way things were, uh, the way the war was handled, all of that in uh, Afghanistan versus Vietnam, it just doesn't hold up. You know, we lost 57,000 American GIs and soldiers in Vietnam and 2000 in Afghanistan both a tragedy, but on a scale, it's like when we were talking, uh, Vince and I, uh, we had another guest and we were talking about uh, comparing January 6th to 9-11. I mean, that's to me, that's absurd. It's the same kind of scale when, when we're talking about the illegal bombing into Cambodia and all the things that happened um, in Vietnam. The other thing that I would say is when we talk about the exit, and this is what really stuck with me in his monologue, was that he said, you know, starting wars is never pretty, being involved in wars is never pretty, and ending them is never going to come without chaos. So what you don't like is not the exit. You don't like war. That's what you don't like. And so what we learned in 2000, what was it, 2011 or 14, whenever we killed OBL, what we learned was we didn't need a war for that. We didn't. We went in with 12 guys who took out OBL. We Instead, right. we had thousands and thousands of guys, and 2,000 of them never came home. So I think one of the things we need to look at is there's never, at least in modern history that I can think of, been a major war that has ended without some level of chaos. Now, did the intelligence community get it in correctly when they – said oh the taliban isn't going to take over right away and i believe the taliban wants to be you know when they said they're giving blanket amnesty and all that i actually believe them i you know i know they haven't earned anybody's trust but i think that they want the legitimacy that they started to get on in february when they met with pompeo they want that to continue they want to be seen as a legitimate nation
2: because well, they um, want Sharia law right like they want to govern themselves sure. the way they want to be governed. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to speak for the larger demographic of, Afgh- of Afghanis and, and let's remember that very, like the vast majority of Afghanistan is taken over by the Taliban and there's this like tiny little part um of the hindu kush area i believe that is it's still kind of a holdout i believe the former vice president so Ashraf Ghani's vp is still like hey guys i'm still here um it's kind of crazy to think though that yeah the taliban just quickly came in and like done like we got y'all we've taken over afghanistan so it brings the question right of like and this is what's being t- hotly debated i think in um in the Twitter sphere, but also should be debated in like just in real life between people who are having these conversations. Who is to kind of blame? I mean, earlier you heard me blame Congress, right? And like us as us as Americans of like kind of forgetting this war, um, but 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 really, Afghani security forces—they are being blamed big time. And and the hot debate is—is is it was it capacity or willingness? Willingness or capacity? And I think it's a mixture of both.
0: Yeah, I think well, you, you also have to blame their leadership. You know what I mean? Uh, there was all kinds of corruption. They weren't getting paid. You know, they were stationing guys far from their homes. Um, and of course, you know, given the choice, if it's protect this town that I have no connection to or protect my wife, my children, my grandparents, my parents, people deserted and people left and they went back to, to their homes. Um, and the Taliban, again, I think people think they came through with, you know, with weapons and guns and, and pointed them at people. They came through with bribes.
2: Yeah. You know what like I mean? They'll turn and electricity on if you do what we say. I mean, that's, right. that's how a regional government works, right? Like, they get things done. I've heard that in the past from people. Like, the Taliban did this for me. Like, they, they're really actors who get things done. But again, bribes. So...
1: Right. The, the the Afghan security forces picture is a complicated one. I heard General Jack Keane explaining earlier this week and 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 highlighting like think about the number of casualties they sustain though. It's this this was a force that even with American backing sustained tens of thousands of right. of, of killed uh, soldiers who actually did fight for the cause of a of a national purpose of for Afghanistan uh, with some expectation that there would be an end here uh, in which they could be victorious. Now again, like you, like you, Jason just said, it's complicated. You've got um, you've got corruption in the upper ranks. You've got people taking money, not giving it to soldiers. This is where the ghost soldier phenomenon came from. You had people who that three hundred thousand number that was being quoted by the Biden administration over and over it was just not true. It was there was no force that was three hundred thousand strong uh, going against the Taliban here. Um, and you also had a lot of incompetence, a lot of illiteracy, which is very real in Afghanistan uh, and. Uh, People, you know, you see these videos from reporters who were in the region over the course of the last two decades, Afghan security forces, guys putting their helmets on backwards, they didn't even know how to use their guns, the hashish that they were smoking while they were supposed to be training. Uh, It was, it was a disaster It was like the bad news bears. I mean, it was like, you know, a very difficult group of people to try and rally together. And a lot of it seems to be now in retrospect, the lack of a unifying cause or purpose Uh, and. Um,
0: and dislike of, of their current you know of, of their government you know yes, yes people didn't like Ashraf Ghani. So why am I gonna fight? You know what I mean like
1: I, I went back you know, and why I, watched, was- I went back and I watched the vice the vice coverage of this. I think it was 2013 or 14. They did a whole report on you know they, they're walking around doing these foot patrols with these Afghan security forces. and when they get to these towns you've got like the village elders who were sitting on the floor and they're asking, the guys in the Afghan security forces, hey, um, when are we gonna get a school? Yeah. When are we gonna get a clinic? And they're like, well, just write a letter. And <laughs> and and so so the basic functions are just not there. So it's like, what are what are we rallying for? Like what is what's the goal here? So it, it was a disaster and we've known it for a long time that it was and America didn't want to reckon with it. And our leaders did keep on misleading us about the progress.
0: Yeah. And, you know, of course they kept kicking the can down the road as, as that was the big thing, yeah. you know, that, that we were saying, I, you know, and, you know, George W. Bush, um, you know, he's the one that's evading a lot of the responsibility for this. And, and you know, I, I know you talked about uh, one thing I will say, Vince, when you were saying, um, you know, you were talking about Barbara Lee. Yeah, who I think is America is an American hero. I love Bar- Barbara Lee. I always have. I think it's one of the biggest mistakes that the Democrats made was you had a progressive moment in the party, and you had a wise older progressive, but people just said, "Ah, oh, we want the young guy. He can quote Biggie lyrics. He's from Brooklyn." You know, and he's, you know, not, not, and, and not, you know, not to say he's a bad guy. Like, Hakeem Jeffries is okay. But Hakeem Jeffries is not nearly, for what that moment called for, is not nearly as experienced. It's funny, and, and I've said this a couple of times on the show, like, everyone wants an, uh, an experienced mechanic, an experienced uh, an electrician. Uh, an experienced doctor, but no one wants an experienced politician. And I don't understand that, you know, but um, she had experience. She's somebody who was willing to go it alone and was mocked heavily for that, uh, for those votes, both on Iraq and in Afghanistan. And she was basically saying, let's take a second here, you know, let's weigh our options Maybe we can go, you know, I'm not saying that this is what she was thinking, but maybe we can go and get OBL with our, you know, with our special forces and we don't need to start a whole war. Maybe there are ways around this to, to go uh, after Al-Qaeda mm. where we don't have to expend all these resources, $2 trillion. Let's take a second while we're not emotional. If anything, if social media has taught everybody, even our viewers and listeners here. If there's one thing you know about social media, don't tweet while you're emotional. You know, Rita, don't go on TV when you're emotional. <laughs> or at least okay. cut off
2: your camera. <laughs> right. You, you know, it devolves into what, what happened to me that time. You know, yeah. th- no, it's, it's
0: the thing. Like, don't, don't tweet. Don't do, don't do things out of emotion because you're always going to say something or do something that you regret. Mm-hmm. Well, that's um, what's missing,
2: I think, from politics these days is, is these um, measured responses. You know, I'm I'm sort of part of the the school of thought that yeah, I don't want an experienced politician anymore. I mean, that's just coming. You know, that's sort of a sign of the times too, right? We like kind of these splashes in the pan. We have such short attention spans. We are kind of gravitating to the new and and shiny thing because it's coming at us so fast. I mean, I look at at, at, at you know what happened on the Dem side, and and I see a uh, a love for Andrew Yang one minute, I see a love for Beto O'Rourke, Hakeem Jeff, right? But like. <laughs> again, let's listen to the women and let's listen to Black women and let's listen to people who's been, who've been through things. And that measured response, I think people are now like, yeah, I mean, regardless of what your politics are, that was what was needed at the time. And we we failed in that way to just act before thinking. And that is a lesson for us now um, for the rest of time of, of how yeah. we deal in the world.
1: So. This is I think this is a good place for to, to reflect on what just happened and why it's different. So Jason, you brought up a few minutes ago that, you know, look, as you, you cited a Lawrence O'Donnell monologue, look, the conclusion of war is always messy. If you're upset about this, what you really hate is just war in general. Yeah, that I that that sounds right, I think, as, in a general sense. But the specific way that this withdrawal has been conducted. Has been a source of criticism, not just from Biden's usual critics. This is a this is a bipartisan affair in terms of, of looking at what the Biden administration did and how it handled this exit and saying, Boy, we really screwed this up. And I think one of the obvious ways you can assess that, and you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to have gone to the Naval War College or West Point or studied military history to understand the basics here. You leave the troops in long enough to get the civilians out. And that's not the situation we find ourselves in right now. We saw the troops leave. Then we see a rush of troops back into Kabul now. The White House is saying in the last 24 hours, they've been telling the United States Congress there are upwards of 15,000 Americans. Forget the Afghan interpreters for a moment, although we're trying to get them out as well. 15,000 Americans who are in Afghanistan right now Who are receiving conflicting guidance about whether or not they should shelter in place or head to Kabul or what they need to do to get out of the country. And when they make that journey, they will not be guaranteed security by the United States. There is no security by the United States unless they can get inside a line of Taliban who are now surrounding Kabul. I mean, this is uh, in many ways a preventable disaster, this part of this exit. Would there have been chaos given an exit either way? Would the Taliban have taken over Either way, it seems like yes is the answer to yeah. that. But this yeah. specific moment—it's a big deal—and I and I and and I agree with you. War, in all of its in all of its ways, is a mess. Uh, but I I don't think we should say that um, as a way to conceal how this particular moment is being is being conducted.
2: Yeah, no, I, a I, response, right? Like the the botched execution of uh, of this withdrawal. I mean, you could be for withdrawal, but you can also say, "I didn't want it to go down like this," and and that was me. I mean, I, I love that Joe Biden said, "Yes, I'm going to pull these troops out." I mean, he's the only one of the past four presidents to have kids who a, a child, one child, right? Bo, who's no longer um, go to war. I mean, that that means something big, and I I, I don't think we We hear that enough is that this is an empathetic man. I don't think it brings him any pleasure or joy to see these reports. And I think his comms staff in the West wing is failing him actually in this moment. I think Jake Sullivan did a solid job talking about the logistics and the operation that's happening right now on the ground there yesterday. So I hope they take Jake Sullivan out, uh, drag him out a little bit more and let him do the talking, but it, it's a mess. I, I do know one thing he's not on vacation. He's probably thinking, wow, this has gone really badly. And, and even though I voted for him, I don't think he's perfect in the this moment. I do wish kind of like JFK during the Bay of Pigs. I wish he'd come out and said, I made a mistake.
0: You know what? what, I'll I'll just say broadly, if I cast my ballot for you, I absolutely feel like I have the right to criticize you. That was the one thing that I, I, well, among many others, that was the one thing I didn't like about the, the Trump crowd, you know, or one of the things I didn't like about the Trump crowd was that they were like, whatever our fearless leader says, and I'm like, that's the exact opposite of what we should be doing. I voted for Obama. I criticized him for eight years straight, <laughs> like daily. I protected him from racist attacks, which he had plenty of. But when he did things wrong, I felt like my ballot actually bought me the right to criticize what he did in his actions and and never there was a lack of judgment. Same thing with and, you know, just being an American citizen, I think I have the right to criticize Uh, any any elected official but I certainly think that you know the the one thing that you are seeing on the left uh on all elements of the left even the centrist left that's like you know that are Joe Biden stands even they are saying look the president deserves some level of criticism I'm actually kind of you know again I'm more on the side of first of all If anybody understands Afghanistan for the past, you know, probably hundreds of years now, Afghanistan is Afghanistan. It's not Pakistan or, you know, even Pakistan or India or, you know, anywhere else in that same region. It's Afghanistan. It's not even Iraq. Afghanistan has always been underdeveloped and, you know, um, you know, it, it is. A different kind of country.
2: Well, Jason, really quick, on that point yesterday, I kind of got into it with CNN's Jim Sciutto on Twitter because he tried to... He offered this supposition that, the, oh, the Taiwanese people are probably looking at, at our response in Afghanistan or looking at how, how we conducted this withdrawal, and they're probably really nervous. And I was like, dude, you can't draw that analogy. Yeah. Uh, you can't really pull a parallel there because it's just not the same. Uh, and there, there's a great piece out in The Diplomat by, I believe it's Vincent Chen, um, a former guy from Tech Road, the Taiwanese economic office um and and he's a he's he's written a beautiful piece on how afghanistan is not taiwan and vice versa but there are lessons that ought to be learned but 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 to your point that you just made afghanistan geographically is completely different i mean you look at taiwan you see some a a place that that manufactures most of the world's high-tech electronics uh cutting edge and so democratic nations have a real interest in in you know, really supporting Taiwan the Taiwanese people against the aggression from China, uh, but you, you can't you can't look at these and say this is at all the same or we're going to be yeah. ostracized on the world stage for this. I mean, yes, for different reasons, but I, I don't. I, I mean, the Taiwanese also have such a capable air force and navy, well, and they look. It's just the, a different situ- situation.
1: You know, also like this whole idea of like getting into nation building in the first place. Again, that's part of our mission creep in Afghanistan. Originally, you go in Afghanistan kill the bad guys and and yeah. get out. That's And that's something that I think Americans of almost every stripe supported and probably do continue to support to this day, that element of the mission. But then the nation building thing, even as it was happening, I remember back at the time uh, that there was, you know, all the people who were kind of advocating for it or at least talking about how it might work were reflecting on history. OK, where did it succeed? Where did the United States have success in places where? Where Democrats have been where democracies have been established and typically when you talk about this you point to two countries in particular Germany in the wake of World War II and Japan as well in the wake of World War II and how you can est- establish uh, meaningful sort of working democracies now what those countries have in common is a sense of national identity and unity and they're not sectarian it's 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 you know in Japan everybody's Japanese it's kind of all together you got the emperor f- swearing off his own divinity. Uh, In the in the wake of World War Two, and getting the people to basically, you know, head in the direction of this democracy. These are very different worlds, and and uh, and you also have to typically have some sort of legacy of, as Germany did, of a democratic history that you're familiar with democratic institutions that you can do them that you can go through the motions of elections. This is all. This was we were taking a stone age country, Afghanistan, and trying to impose that on a place that had that had that had no history of any of those things and deep sectarian divisions that would not be resolved in a typical Western democr- democratic process. And the writing was on the wall back in 2001, 2002. And yet here we are in 2021, looking back and going, man, that was a disaster.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. Um, I, I think, and it's interesting because I, I believe our, our State Department today, um, there are some really smart people in there. Tony Blinken's a, a smart guy. Uh, all the people that are working on this, you know, they're smart people. But they really had a brain fart when they, you know, started thinking about how to handle uh, this exit. But also, as you said, just just all of the, these kind of, you know, the the tribalism in that part of the world. <laughs> like they are not and and again, whenever you try and create new nations, and I'm thinking about this even in Africa and other parts where you say, okay, here are the borders. We didn't do that in Afghanistan, but you know, uh, and these people are gonna live together as one unified group when that's not how they see themselves. That always leads to conflict and and it never really works. So you built up this, the infrastructure, you spent $2 trillion, building up the infrastructure for people who, who are always going to, who don't necessarily see themselves as countrymen. Um, And I wonder how much that played a role in the failure of the Afghan security forces. You know what I mean? You got two people, maybe they understand each other, but they don't see each other as like, Hey, you know, we're from the same place. You know what I mean? We're not that, that vice
1: package that I was telling you about that I was watching You know, they went back and they they brought they literally pictures of I think it was the vice package. Anyway, it was a, somewhere in the last decade. There were guys in Afghanistan who were in a remote mountain region who were shown photos of the World Trade Center on fire. And they were asked, do you know what this is? They looked at it and they were like, is that Kandahar? They had never even been to Kandahar. So they don't they 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 have no idea what it is. They have no idea what's going on. They don't really know much about the global conflict. They don't know what the basis for all of this is. I mean, it is like the country is, it's a huge country. It's, it's with people who are very disparate from one another, very disconnected from one another. Um, it's an amazing thing. And,
0: and, uh, I mean, it's you really- know what tripped me out? I, I was, I was watching, uh, the Afghan or the, uh, the Taliban in the presidential palace. Yes. And, and I On see one guy. Equipment. Yeah, well, I see one guy with his phone, and it's like he's going on Facebook or something. Yeah. And I'm like, he's getting service in Afghanistan, and I can't get it when I drive into Pennsylvania? <laughs> like, what is going on here? I had that feeling um, when I went to
2: India last year. I also was like, I was, I was in India at the top of 2020, and, it, and also in 2019. I'm thinking to myself, man, they're connected. I got people <laughs> yeah. I know in West Virginia that, that have yeah. trouble with broadband. <laughs> I <laughs> right.
1: know. When, you ever try to drive by the Pentagon? And oh. you lose your service when you're on the phone. Yeah. It's like, it's like every time I drive right by the Pentagon, like right next to it. I, I think I would assume that's, that's technology induced. Probably that's like not a lack of connection. That's somebody jamming connections around. Oh,
0: absolutely. But
1: I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm <laughs> driving past the Pentagon. I'm like, I'm sorry. I always lose my connection here.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, absolutely. I really, I
2: really like that mention though, Jason, of the cultural bit, right? Speaking of, you know, speaking, uh, Dari and Pashto are like two of the official languages in Afghanistan, and you've got these young soldiers from out in Missouri or Texas or Florida going over there, and they've got to get the help of these guys on the ground to learn how to speak these languages. I mean, it is it is a tall order that we put our soldiers through, we put the people on the ground, our allies to help us with. I mean, this was really, really tough for many years, two decades long uh, and and we still couldn't really figure out culturally how do you get it how do you get the situation so so it's i mean to me there's a lot of blame that goes around i'm just i'm glad we're out but i'm definitely concerned about the immediate need to get like yeah. some 80 90,000 i think i heard was the number of like yeah. interpreters allies afghanis who helped us and i mean we've gotten on, we've gotten out something I mean just an absurd number like a fourth of that not even a fourth and um and I think we have some 10,000 American citizens as of right now still stuck there so this is this is a cluster I mean my heart hurts thinking about the tragedies that we are not hearing about probably the Taliban going to door to door uh raping women uh who don't comply and who don't want to live under Sharia law like how many of those women are there I don't know but all I know is that there is there was oppression over there. And I think they are going to go backward. And that's sad and scary. But I hope our lawmakers learn these freaking lessons, man. I hope they get yeah. lessons from this. I mean, culturally, just for the future of what American democracy means and what it means to promote that on the world stage. So many lessons to be learned.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I, I had a couple of friends um who served in Afghanistan. And one of the things that I think connects all of them is that they all came back with a serious affection for the afghan people they all felt that they were just really kind beautiful people um but i think all of them would agree that going over there and trying to dictate the way that we see the world it doesn't work you know what i mean um i
2: agree yeah
0: and i i think you know, trying to nation build and build nations and our image, it, it, it's not something that, that ever really has functioned, ever really works. And we, you know, we end up losing wars and, and America, you know, I'm sick of losing wars. Like, why are we getting into wars that we that, you know, really have no end? We have and some of these are domestic, like a war on drugs, you know, uh, like these things never end well for us.
1: Can I I pause something to to both of you that I, I just to get a thought. So one of the rationales for why we were in Afghanistan, why we were told what little we were told as an American public for being in Afghanistan for as long as we've been is, well, we need to keep preventing there from being a place where terror threats can develop and then hurt us. Right. So the the, th- the thinking this week of that we've, I've heard explained a couple of times is, well, maybe we never achieve what we would normally refer to as victory. Maybe we never build these institutions into into something like in our image, like you just said, Jason. But maybe we just achieve some sort of stalemate where we continue to provide military support to the Afghans and we keep the region relatively stable. And a lot of the people who make these arguments will point to places where we have kept troops in the wake of conflicts. Uh, for instance, I think it was Condoleezza Rice writing this week pointed to the Korean War. She emphasized that, you know, a lot of people keep saying that the longest war we've ever been in is Afghanistan, which uh, you could yeah, no. say that's you could use that reference. But it's not exactly true. If you look at no. the Korean War, Korea. which has yeah. been in armistice midst ever since. And it's been, you know, you know, many years Never ended, since yeah. the conclusion Your of the Korean war. war. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, So, and
1: and meanwhile, we maintain a true presence in South Korea of tens of thousands of troops in order to prevent a a conflict from actually breaking out between the North and the South. Uh, So, with that in mind, do you find those arguments with merit, and are you concerned? And Rena, I guess start with you on this. Are Mm -hmm. you concerned about the chances here of terror? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, 9-11, I was a freshman in college watching those towers fall and thinking like, my gosh, the world is forever changed. I mean, how can towers fall like that? That, That's all I remember and seeing those faces and hearing who was responsible and then everything that ensued. I mean, it's definitely fundamentally shifts how you view uh, American safety, what it means to be safe from foreign threats. Uh, so I, I grew up in that era. I dated myself for a reason to say, yeah, in 2001, I was in my first couple weeks of college thinking to myself, yeah, you know, what I've studied in comparative politics and had learned through model UN debate as a high schooler, like, No, I threw all that out the window because we had to relearn again what national security uh, was going to mean for our country. And to this day, I say, um, I I have waxed and waned between uh, feelings of shame about my views on national security because um, look, I mean, there's no good way to say it, but yeah, I care about Afghani women and children. Of course, I'm a mom now, two really tiny kids. Um, It's really hard to not get me to like, anything's a tearjerker. Okay. Uh, I mean, I I haven't even got kindergartners yet, but, but, but the thing is I care about American women and children more. And I know that sounds really cruel to say it that way, but I know there's childhood hunger on my street Mm -hmm. and I, to I cannot, in good conscience, keep seeing these military dollars be spent the way they've been spent in my lifetime. I mean, this is just wild to me that we are not willing to invest and make the American family stronger. And so there are a bunch of neocons out there who I've been affiliated with for years, but I do not think like them. I, I do not want us to have these permanent installations in other countries. Um, Vince, you made some points earlier, you know, that kind of got me, I wanted to ask you, like, was it a binary choice? You know, cause that is the question now being asked. And people are saying it was not a binary choice, Biden, you could have left troops on the ground. So it didn't have to go down like this. I definitely think we have a responsibility. I think we need to even throw out the formal visa process and anybody that was an ally to us that we can prove and get on a plane and get them here. So they, de- they get what they deserve for helping us. And we screwed it up. We we deserve to you know to pay in that way to take care of those people. Um, so I, I do hope this this first bit goes well, but a permanent installation of boots on the ground to me all over the world, I I just I I I, I go back and forth. I don't think that keeps us safer in this era where we have such great cyber intelligence. Um the world is changing and our lawmakers aren't keeping up with it. And it is so frustrating to me because it's these same antiquated views from the center right Republicans who I generally love um, and have become very close with in this uh, in the, the era of Trump uh, because they opposed him for for solid reasons like I did. Um, but there were some parts of Trump that kind of got me thinking like, yeah, man, I think this guy kind of has a point. He wants to do more here. And, and I think every American president is that way. I really do. I, I look, I'm somebody that spoke out against Trump. I was the first RNC delegate to do it. I paid a heavy price for that. So it's hard to get me to say something positive about Donald Trump. But I will say, I, you know, I I think most American presidents understand there are a heck of a lot of problems here that the money that we spend on our military right now, and I'm not saying we don't take care of our veterans and gosh, we need to take care of them in this next Moment too, you know. There to any veteran that's listening, my heart just goes out. My heart goes out. I mean, these guys saw these men and women saw their friends come back in 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 coffins. Like we have so much to do to take care of our own before we go set up these boots on the ground installations around the world with the idea that it keeps us safer and stronger and promotes our liberties and freedoms some kind of way.
0: So let me first first thing that I want to say is something I wanted to say. A while back, and that is um, I want to be careful as particularly as an academic, I want to be careful about engaging in a certain level of Orientalism um, and making the Afghan. I think some of the things that I said made it sound like the Afghan people are primitive or, you know, I I don't want to go into that. I think that they just have a different culture than we have um, and we shouldn't impose our culture upon them. And, and think that our way of doing things is superior. Um, the other thing I'd like to say is that I think people are resilient and I think we should allow, and even on some level, I've thought about this going back and forth, you know, when we say we need to get everybody who helped us out, but then where does the resistance to the Taliban come from? So I, I you know, in many ways, you know, I've been thinking maybe, and, and, you know, you guys feel free to push back on this because I, I haven't really formulated it. But this is just an idea that's kind of popped into my head is that maybe some of the people who have opposed the Taliban and helped the United States should stay in the land of their ancestors. And maybe that's where the the organic resistance comes from, is from those people, Um And again, I think we are underestimating the resilience of human beings to oppression and how they can rise up and make things really uncomfortable for the Taliban, make change in their country and maybe even regime change, which I think should come from organically from within a country. Um, When it comes from outside of the borders, that's Bay of Pigs. That's, you know, that's whatever, you know, you try to do when you try to change a regime. You, you know, in Cuba, we tried it. We tried to give uh, Castro exploding cigars or whatever. Like, to me, maybe there should be some level of, of trusting the Afghan resilience um, and their desire for freedom. The other thing that I would say to everything, you know, to what Vince was saying is that a lot of sp- state sponsors of terror, when we look at 9-11, didn't come from Afghanistan. They hid in Afghanistan, but those were Saudis. You know, th- those people that, you know, Donald Trump was touching the globe with, you know, that that like, you know, whatever that thing was, you know, um, uh, that, that was those so people futuristic, were-
2: futuristic, by the way. That was yeah. like a crazy image. I was like, is that from the future?
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I totally look. you know what it looked like? Do you ever seen like- uh, like in a science museum when you put your hands on there and the kid oh, with yeah. the long hair his hair would stand up the
2: current,
0: the current uh, yeah, the current. yeah that, that's what i was thinking when i saw it yeah, um but i think I uh, donald trump has porn. enough hairs he has enough hairspray that his hair will never stand up it kind of looked like they um, were combining their rings to summon captain
1: planet I thought
0: right i so i i mean you know it, it's the saudis it's the iranians and, uh-huh. you know, the Saudis are kind of our sometime ally, you know, so this is why I don't buy this whole thing about, oh, well, we want all these, uh, these advances for women, you know, then why are we, you know, friendly with Saudi Arabia? Good question. You know, and with the Wahhabis and all of that. And, and I, I spent time in Saudi Arabia and, you know, I, I think there's also a difference in class, like women of a certain class in Saudi Arabia are, have different freedoms. Let's, let's be clear about that. You know what I mean? Than the women who are, um, poor and working class, but still, you know, we sit there and, you know, with all of this talk that I keep seeing on CNN and on some of these other networks, you know, but they don't focus on some of these other countries that have just as bad treatment of women. Yep. Um, and they make it seem like that was the cause of us going in. That was not yeah. the reason for that war. You have to be careful with that rationale
1: because that that can grow out of control really quickly. I mean, it, right. is, it is totally appropriate to think it is a moral atrocity to see the way that women are treated in Afghanistan uh, and are going to be now going into the future by the Taliban. It's totally right. It's the right to have that judgment. But understand that there are foreign policy implications to adopting a posture towards we will intervene militarily when it comes to women being mistreated. If that's the standard. Yeah. We're or going to be or human
0: rights in general, yeah. I yeah. would yeah. say, human, not just he, women. Yes. You know, cause we go into China for the Uyghurs. We go, you know, that that's not what we do. We do it's things kind of that are based Rina, on the American interest.
1: Rena said it well before I think, which is like, you just need to get your own house in order first. There's a lot, there are, there are people within our country who desperately need help who aren't being addressed. Uh, and, we're, and we're off on foreign adventures. And so it is You know, obviously one of the things you should do is focus on your own country. Jason, you brought up something a moment ago that I thought was uh, great. I know, you're say, I know you said your idea on this, is you're still mulling it over and that that's probably the right place to be. But the idea that like maybe a country's best people and, a, and uh, those people who, are, have, who can provide the opportunity for the best future for that country shouldn't be so easily spirited away. To deprive that country of people who have um, a different vision for it, uh, a more positive vision for it, I, I agree with you, and I think that that idea can be stretched to a lot of um, countries, to include uh, what's going on on our southern border right now, Central America. Uh, you know, you want ambitious, uh, productive, family-oriented people to stay within their own countries to make those countries flourish. I you know, ref- a refugee status should be the absolute last possible uh, thing that um, we should have to extend. Uh, and I realize that the choices here are not great. I mean, obviously, you're looking at a lot of people who are already being gunned down in Afghanistan. This morning, the Taliban were shooting people who were just trying to raise the flag of Afghanistan. Uh, so this is not I'm not pretending this is a simple, uh, a simple decision. But we're already seeing pictures of bravery. We're seeing women in the streets of Afghanistan coming out and holding up signs and staging protests already against the Taliban. The consequences of that, from where we're sitting, seem pretty big, that, there's, that, there, that there is um, obviously tremendous peril in doing something like that. But there is a spirit of resistance that does exist within Afghanistan. How big is it? I don't know. How meaningful will it be in the end? I'm not sure. But I think your point is really well taken, which is that, like, is it a good idea to to create a refugee crisis when the population that cares most about the future of the country will, will often be the group that flees it.
2: Well, I heard there's there's refugee resettlement money. Um, not heard. I read this somewhere. A credible source, I promise. <laughs> I'm like sounding like I'm like hearing stuff on the street and uh, trying to pass it <laughs> off as real info. But I, look, I mean, we live in a fake news era. So I want to be real and say, anybody who's listening, check yeah. this out for me. I'm going to go check this out after we get done here. Uh, there is apparently, I read um, from a credible source that there's refugee resettlement money that was not used in the recent past that Congress could be using for resettling these F. Afghan refugees so um mm. I I really wonder about that but but yeah I mean there's definitely you know to me there there are big choices we can make and and uh, not to completely draw a parallel here but in 2019 I've been uh, affiliated with the International Republican Institute that's not affiliated with the Republican Party but IRI and then it sort of um its counterpart, uh, the NED, the National Endowment for Democracy, they go around the world doing these things. I mean, they're 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 nonpartisan, nonprofit. Um, I, they they would be considered NGOs, non governmental organizations that that promote this stuff across the, across the world. And earlier, I said I was in India last year. Um, I went on a a delegation, a cultural diplomatic delegation with Meridian International Center, which I love. They promote a lot of cultural diplomacy, public diplomacy. So I, I do a lot with them. And then the year before, I had gone uh, to. Morocco with them but prior to that I went to India for a cousin's wedding and on the way back my husband was like hey if we can find a well-priced ticket to the Maldives the islands uh, would you go and I'm like yeah I mean they're they're close to India so so we just we find a good ticket and we go and I reach out to IRI and they're like amazing, would you be willing during your island vacation with your husband <laughs> to peel out and go meet these Maldivian women? And I'm like, heck yeah. So I leave my husband alone for a day on an island and I take this boat and at my own expense I spent an entire day meeting uh, their gender minister, uh, heads of NGOs on the ground there in, in Malay, their capital. And these women were just so incredible. The, these, these are Muslim women. Um, and they're describing to me kind of the problems, you know, sort of like the challenges of just really getting what they want in uh in, in Maldivian society. So it was it was really, really great. And IRI facilitated facilitated every interaction I had there. Um, and, and it was just so amazing to hear of the work IRI does on the ground, NED does on the ground. So there are groups doing this promotion of democracy uh, work that I what think is, Rena, we what is a gender, to know more about.
1: Rena, what does a gender minister do?
2: Yeah, so their gender minister in the Maldives. Um, I mean, she's she's basically pushing issues to the forefront of stuff like. Um, you know, women uh, menstruate, <laughs> you know, here are the challenges that, um, that Maldivian women have accessing uh, products for, for that time of the month. I mean, just little issues because it is a largely, it's a country that's largely governed by men and men of the Muslim faith. So, you know, not too long ago in many cultures and faiths, it was thought that women are untouchable and unclean when they're menstruating and sort of are extra, excluded from, from general societal functions. Um, and, and, and their mosques and some of their imams still carry some very like antiquated views on just women's role in society. They should not even be seen. They should not speak in the workplace, stuff like that. So their gender minister's role essentially is to kind of advocate for just the general status and livelihood of Maldivian women. That was shocking to me.
0: Interesting. Mm, Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, I, I, I think really quickly, I want to kind of go back And say, um, you know, one of the reasons why, sorry, one of the reasons why I think, um, you know, I I heard, I think it was like people were saying, why didn't we give air support, um, you know, to the Afghan people or why, you know, I think Mitch McConnell said he would have never, he would have never pulled out. Um, And then others Uh, have said, you know, why didn't we give air support? And I think part of that is because Joe Biden was part of the Obama administration and remembers Libya, uh, where we kind of did similar things. And he's like, if you want air support, number one, at the very least, you've got to fight on your own. We're not going to fight the battle because then we haven't left the war. The whole point is to leave the war. Um, And... I also, um, you know, kind of want to transition and and ask you, Rena, a little bit about your transition and where you are politically right now. Um, You've described yourself a couple times as a never-Trumper, but you're still describing yourself as a Republican. And many people are saying that Donald Trump is the leader of the Republican Party. Where do you find yourself then um and i know a lot of people i've I've met a lot of people from you know the lincoln project i know people have different things to say about the lincoln project but you know i've met some of those people and many of them have left the party and become independent why are you sticking with being uh the part a part of the republican party when um the republican party seems to be going in a different direction
2: and yeah, seems to hate people like me. I mean, I, I would hate people like trying. me too. <laughs> I wear the Never Trump badge as a, as a badge of honor, frankly, I mean, largely because when I did what I did and speaking out as the f- first RNC delegate to to say, yeah, I don't want this guy to be the nominee. And I was already elected at that point. And and, and so obviously The Washington Post and others took notice being like, hey, is this the beginning of an ins- could there be an insurgency on the floor of the, the convention this summer? And heck, yeah, we were planning one. Um, It didn't work out, obviously. But. But, you know, for me, Donald Trump, I mean, he, you know, I don't want to make every conversation about him. Uh, He's a former president now. Yes, he is the, um, continues to be the standard bearer, the leader of the Republican Party, but another badge I also wear very proudly is that I'm a Republican in name only. And I think it's because I've made a decision. I've, unfor- I've unfortunately seen that we are not a multi-party system. We are we are a country with two parties. And, and if we don't have two healthy parties, then we don't have a healthy democracy. And to me, um, the Republican party deserves to have a chance to live. Uh, and, and people have a lot of mixed thoughts on that. Uh, I've never vilified a Trump supporter. I mingle with them often. My mom almost voted for Trump. Um, In fact, in the beginning, my father was sort of like, yeah, you keep going, you you tell it like it is, speak your truth. Uh, Because my dad had always taught America to me like it was a concept, like a really beautiful quilt where all these things were possible. And my dad was a polio survivor who was born and raised in Uganda. And then we lost everything under dictator Idi Amin. And dad was Mm. already in India for medical school at the time. But as the only son among seven sisters, overnight, he realized his parents had lost two generations of wealth that they built up. Um, they lost everything, every single thing we had. We, we were wealthy merchants in Uganda and we were kicked out for that. Um, people who, you know, Idi Amin called for the genocide of non-Blacks and largely Indian uh, Indian folks, uh, people of Indian descent, like my family, we were, we were robbed of everything. Many lost their lives, were sent to concentration camps. My grandfather was spared of one and was able to get on a plane to the UK. And then my dad was able to go straight from India to um, Duke University, Durham, North Carolina. He was a general surgeon uh trainee there and he he made it here to this country on his own merit and he made it here with nothing and and he was the son of a rich merchant growing up and decided to go to medical school and 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 as, as a polio survivor at that when he came to America with so little it was his his will to do well for his family to support them and use what he knew and 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 really thrive here that I is the whole reason I am what I am today and so thinking of that is my roots is why I became a Republican because I was always fearful and knew that if government became too big, too oppressive, it can do this. It can wipe out three generations like that. And um, that fundamentally changed the course of my family's life. I mean, it, it defines who we are even today as people, uh, because my dad always said, "Look here in America, we have the Americans for uh, Americans with Disabilities Act. I mean, the ADA made it to so my dad, even into his 70s, could use ramps and go to the same restaurants and access those restrooms there. The same way any, any of us who didn't have the impediment that he did. Uh, Could And he said, that's what makes this country so beautiful. And I think I still feel so proud to be an American. And I think there are people across the entire political spectrum who feel the way I do. I've just chosen to be and stay a Republican in this moment because I think we need more change agents. We need more people to talk about fiscal conservatism in in a way that they can get promoted to the next generation. I mean, right now, the the talk is all it seems is social conservatism and then defined by a man who frankly wanted to. be a dictator in my opinion. And that's why I opposed him. So yeah, there are people who who hate me for the simple fact that I oppose Trump. I don't hate Trump. I don't hate anybody who voted for him. I simply feel that our country could have done better. But I get it. I get that people want something different for our country. And so my hope is that I can be part of propping up candidates on the right side of the aisle that speak for truth and have principle, much like Barbara Lee, even though she's a very, you know, she's very progressive on the other side of the aisle. That's that's a principled leader. We need that in this next chapter of our country's history. And I feel like we have a deficit of that. And so for me, I, I am more of a political activist nowadays more than anything because I just want to bring people together. I recently joined the advisory board of the Renew Democracy Initiative. And that's uh, that was created by Gary Kasparov, the very famous Russian dissident and, and world chess champ. Um, Gary is somebody, those are my people. When, I, when I, I see and hear these stories of people and what they've stood up against, when I stood up against Trump, in my own way, um, never set out to want to do that. It just, it happened on accident. I was happening to be doing a Fox news national interview in which I said it, It, it's because it was natural to me. It was part of my value system to say, I don't want somebody that wants to be a dictator and actually expand what I thought was the role of government and do things that I felt were anti-American. That's my whole that's my whole story, and I'm sticking to it. I know that was a lot, but that's so, really where I'm at today.
0: So, what do you say to to people? Because there are people on on the left who would say to someone like you or some of the Never Trump Republicans that the direction of the Republican Party prior um, was what led to Donald Trump. Um, that some of the things that that had been happening prior. Is what led to the thing that you oppose right now, and so that's my first question. The other question I want to ask really quickly is uh, about um, why you think, you know, because I thought your your uh, reason for being a Republican, being somebody who was made to flee a country, um, why you think the Republican Party is not diverse? Why don't? Why aren't there more people like you? Why aren't there any? Uh, uh, you know, a good amount of people like me. Why is it that the Republican Party lacks diversity?
2: Mm. I'm going to keep.
0: And I see Vince short. loves that question. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I do. You, question.
1: I, you asked it of Rena, so I'm, I'll uh, I'll sit here. And listen.
2: <laughs> I, I want to keep this short. I really do because I, I definitely want to hear your take too, Vince. I mean, number one, y- you know why? Um, okay why is the Republican party what it is today in its current form? Why did it embrace Donald Trump? And yeah, we had a lot of red flags that could have, that could have, should have and could have, and should have told us maybe somebody like this will come out of our ranks. And I mean, he, it was a hostile takeover. If you ask me of the Republican party at first, at first, but I, I liken it to um, how Islam was, was hijacked by its most fundamental elements right? I mean, these fanatical people uh, who call themselves Muslims, but go around the world committing acts of terror in the name of Allah. I mean, to me, that's just as crazy as you know the, the far right wing having taken over the entire party and saying, we're all like this. I have met so many sensible people that voted for Trump just because they were frustrated. They felt like Washington didn't do anything for them. They, just, they believed some of the lies that Trump was telling in my native West Virginia, for example he said, I'm bringing coal back, but nothing's bringing coal back. Okay. So, so this was to me, um, how could we have prevented that? I, I don't know how we could have prevented that. Uh, I, I think both parties have a lot wrong with them. I think there are a lot more people that are right smack dab in the middle of the center. But then I do think there are a lot of people that have decided that they need to choose a side and, and choose to stay quiet when their side is doing something terrible. And so for me, on the one hand, I was politically homeless for a long time. And I still am. I mean, people say, yeah, you're a Republican in name only. So yes, I, I guess I kind of am. Uh, but but the reality is this is that this could have come out of the left too. Maybe not at the pace that at which it came out of the right. But let me let me segue right into your second question of why is there why aren't there more people like me? I I don't want to say the word Jason because um, I, I know you and I have been on the Roll Martin show in the past together where we do talk about race and we have tough mm. conversations about race and we should in this country. But the Southern strategy I think obviously has had everything to do with with today's Republican Party. Um, But I also think that Republican leadership, 10 years ago when I was sitting in the office of the co-chair of the Republican National Committee, a woman named Sharon Day was in that role from Broward County, Florida, she cared about communities of color, she really genuinely did, she just had no juice, she had no power, and it lacked, and she told me, she said there's been a lack of a long-term vision of how to get people to understand these communities of color, that our values are their values, so I think Democrats just messaged better to uh, people of color for, for decades, for decades. Like when my mom landed up here in 1980, uh, I mean, she just was a Democrat right away because the natural messaging coming out of the Democratic Party was speaking right to her. And I don't think Republicans, the messaging is kind of they they just didn't do it right. So so it's a two two there for me, for me. But Yeah. Okay. Definitely Vince, uh, you, Vince's
0: take. Yeah, Vince looks like he's about to explode right now. No, so. I mean,
1: not to explode. I'm just trying to keep an inventory of all the things that I wanted to address. And so I'll try and I'll try and do that rapidly if I can. Um, Donald Trump we, we, it was brought up early in the conversation. Uh, there was this idea that like, no, hey, nobody could disagree with him within his own party. Uh, certainly, you know, people who categorize themselves as never Trump, Rena uh, among them, uh, being Republicans, obviously the type of people who are out there criticizing him. Uh, with abandon. And that's a totally fine category in American politics. Uh, Also, there were people who were very Trump supportive, who were deeply critical of him during his administration. In fact, one of his earliest supporters and most prominent, Ann Coulter, ended up being one of his most vicious critics because she thought that he had failed to live up to his obligations on immigration. And she was expressing it yet again uh, in the last 24 hours. Um, And there there were times, of course, uh, where Trump was being pushed towards foreign interventions uh, where uh, and and he took some shots that he had people on the right who support him who were opposed to that. Uh, he didn't take shots, and he had people on the right who support him who were opposed to that. So there's definitely been um, a mix of opinion on Trump. There's always going to be, regardless of the politician, an amen choir. Uh, I'm seeing it even in the last 72 hours for Joe Biden. Uh, one I, I saw this is by the way, this is not like a famous pundit or anybody. It's just somebody on Twitter. But George Stephanopoulos announced that he's supposed to have this interview with Joe Biden today, Wednesday. Uh, and right, and what should I ask him? Said George Stephanopoulos and one of the first reactions was some random Joe Biden supporter saying, ask him if he knows how much the country loves him, <laughs> which is, yeah. which which would be one of the most uh, hilarious questions that any journalist yeah. could possibly ask. Of a that was tweeted
0: by. Bo Jiden,
1: (laughs) (laughs) Jiden. Um, so so there is that there's always going to be some aspect of a call to personality around politicians, by the way, I'm not suggesting that it was small for Donald Trump. There's a lot of people out there who very much support him uh, and are going to reflexively support him no matter what he says or does and thinks that he reached the right conclusion. Now, there's a reason for that Uh, and not just, you know, people being supportive in in a in a way that they support a sports team and oppose all the other teams. I think that the conversation around Donald Trump, the person, always kind of skips past the people who supported him and why they supported him in the first place. Rena kind of brought it up uh, and and addressed it, but the reality is Washington, both parties, the Uniparty, had so thoroughly uh, been of disservice to the American public for so long that you had people who were desperate for something completely different. They were desperate for somebody who at least empathized with them? Who spoke their language? Who recognized the problems that exist in Washington? Who recognized the ways in which the status quo had sold us out? The ways in which that our we were sold out to China. That's not a new issue for Trump. That's something that he had for years, uh, dating back to the 1980s. Um, the ways you know in which American energy production was important. Obviously, Trump gets elected by the conclusion of his administration. Amer- America is a net exporter of energy, energy independent. Um, you know there is. There was a real passion for something different. And were there uncomfortable moments? Absolutely. But the way I've always thought of Trump was that he the analogy that I've used for him is that he was like chemotherapy, that there was you had no other option. The only the, the he was the guy I'm thoroughly convinced. And I know that you'll probably disagree with me, maybe violently, Jason. But that if if um, if we saw Hillary Clinton win in 2016, our country would be in a lot worse state than we are right now. And we're in a bad way right now. Um, And I and I think that I think that Joe Biden and his administration and the Democrat Party broadly is sort of proof of that. I I think that they've horrifically mismanaged so many of the places that they've been entrusted to manage. We're seeing uh, these homicide levels grow in these American cities. It's horrible. And it's the kind of thing we should be addressing rather than spending trillions of dollars overseas. We're seeing an opioid crisis grow even more out of control by a border that's not being taken care of by an administration that should have obligations towards that. I don't think that a party affiliation um, as a positive, like when you ask, like, you know, why is somebody a Democrat? Why is somebody a Republican? I'm I'm pretty turned off by both parties, I will admit. Uh, and um, and I'm not I'm not just taking that position to be contrarian or to identify broadly with other people. I just I'm kind of sick of them. I feel like I've been lied to so many times through the years by all of them uh democrats have taken the country in directions that i don't like at all republicans have not put up a meaningful fight and have often served the same interests all of america's corporations are basically in line with both political parties but chiefly the ones who have all the power uh the big tech companies are in line with the democrats and when we when reno uses words like dictator to refer to donald trump i don't know i mean even when he was contesting the election. He brought those challenges before courts. He failed every time. He had a legal team that wasn't up to the task. He didn't even have election lawyers who were working for him. Those were his efforts to try and uh, fight back against the election, and he failed. And he left office. Um, my my worry and my fear, and I think the, the evidence is there, is that the authoritarian impulses within the United States are controlled by the Democrats right now, and the oh. oligarchs that are connected, <laughs> the oligarchs that are connected to him, look at the chair. Yeah, of COVID, I think
0: that's kind of sure.
1: the... Uh, look at the tyranny of COVID, look at the tyranny of our big tech companies, look at the ways in which we are only allowed to communicate certain lines of thought or else we'll be banished from those places. Um, I, I'm very worried about the future of the country because I do think that there is a, a desire to police thought that has grown out of control really rapidly. And that is not a function of the right. That has been a function of the left. Um, and- oh. And I, that's 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 yeah. what I believe Jason and,
0: and yeah no, no I, I, I dig it. um, you know, i I dig where you know where you're coming from, and uh, that was not brief. <laughs> I, will say that. I know but, but there was a lot that was said. I was trying to keep an inventory yeah. no, 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 no I'm you know, I'm playing with you, bro. I, um no I, I think, um, you know that that's your perspective and and I could not keep an inventory of everything you said. Um, the idea of policing thought, uh, I, I think is, you know, that probably happens a little bit on, on, on both sides. Um, certainly with all of the things of you can't teach this, you can't learn this, we don't want these books in our libraries, that comes from the right. Um, so that's really a, a way of policing thought. But, um, you know, I, I, I want to just turn it back. You know, to, to Rena, to our guest. And, and I do want to um, ask you what you think in particular with um, some of the Republican candidates that we're seeing in, in both the, the congressional and Senate races. Um, I agree, one, one place where I'll say I agree with Vince, um, not in what he just said, but certainly something that he said, you know, many times before. And that is that a healthy democracy doesn't get Donald Trump. A healthy democracy doesn't get Lauren Boebert. You know what I mean? A, a healthy democracy doesn't get MTG. Like, like you know, when you are in a healthy place with your media and a healthy place in your government and your governmental structure, you don't get people like that elected. Um, And, you know, I always think whenever you put words like Donald Trump and empathy together, I think that that's kind of almost funny. That's like that's almost laughable, to be honest. But um, I, uh, I do think that, you know, he he had a way of reaching in and finding something that I think Americans were accustomed to and Americans felt like the left had been pushing against. And, I, and honestly, it started with birtherism. That's where it started. When you got birtherism and this isn't a real American and you're a real American, this isn't what a real American looks like. Um, I think, let's see his birth certificate. And this is why I think, you know, you don't get more Rena Shows in the Republican Party because they ate it up, you know what I mean? real americans don't have names like barack obama you know what i mean um and i think that that's honestly you know why the the democrats uh have dominated amongst people of color and certainly you know people new immigrants and and all of that because my my question has always been you know like you know uh, a couple of the cable news hosts have been like immigration that's just a Democrat ploy to get new voters. Mm. And I'm like, why don't you think you can challenge for those votes? Yeah. You yeah. know, and you know, with, with, uh, uh, you know, with some of the, the direction, I think that the Republican Party, and again, this is where, Rena, I have to say, I have to hold you guys and the people from the Lincoln Project, you know, uh, what's the guy's name? Oh, forget his name, the bald guy, Stuart Stevens and, and the other bald white guy. <laughs> yeah.
2: You mean the, the, a lot of the guys that,
0: that yeah, there's like three bald white bottom. guys. Yeah. I mean, let's not forget I mean, they, they admit they were like, we, with all the disinformation and the, you know, and the dog whistles, we created this environment and then it went too far for us. So I'm like, yo, you're, you're responsible for this.
2: You know, Jason, there's a lot to unpack right there, but, you know, to to, to bridge what Vince said and and to say, yeah, I'm I'm squarely in the middle of a lot of what's being debated, right, about the parties, because I think the ideal voter in a democracy, I really subscribe to the notion that the ideal voter in a democracy doesn't vote along party lines. They vote on the issues, and I want to see more of that. I want to see more uh, people take a stand, even when their whole party seems to go against them. I think that's what our democracy demands of us. I think people thought that that's what Trump was, is that he was going to be this truth teller. He was going to be this outsider that came in and, and really changed everything. And, and I get the frustration that Vince um, sort of you know, touched on there with the big tech and and feeling like, and a lot of corporate interests are against us, the small folks who, who, who don't make tons of money. Uh, I, I actually am more than anything else more frustrated with mainstream media these days. Having been a frequent guest on MSNBC, I do enjoy my appearances there. I've not been a guest at CNN, um, but I'm, I'm pretty frustrated with a lot of the, the, the major channels because I just don't feel that they do it right. They, they, they create these... Uh, arguments where arguments don't need to occur. Uh, There's a lot of misinformation that doesn't get checked because it's just thought to be truth because somebody with an Ivy League um, education has said it. You know, I'm somebody that that feels like, you know, we need to be more independently minded. It's on us to do better and to create a better society for our children um, and for ourselves. I, I want a free and independent and just society in which I can move about without being questioned about how American I am. You know, I, I I received a lot of hate. I received many a death threats after I did what I did in 2016. It's been very difficult for me to talk about because I've had two children in the, in the past five years. And so it's been, I've gone through a little bit <laughs> of a, a funny situation where I really can never sit yeah. down and process. But a lot of that hate was sort of, um, uh, you know, it was confusing for me because it assumed that I was Muslim, which I'm not, uh, and and there's nothing wrong with being Muslim. I'd assumed that I was born in another country, which I'm not, and there's nothing being wrong, uh, ro- nothing wrong with being born in another country. Both my parents were, uh, but came over here and assimilated to the American way. They they put it on us to be part of the great American experiment in a way that I think was uh, what so, it was all of us have been raised with be civil, uh, love your neighbor, you know, just just general themes, but be independently minded, question what is being given to you. So that that leads me to a place where I'm angry also to not have learned uh, more about Black history. Uh, And I'm also angry to not have learned more about world history in general and what America has done around the world. You can be angry about two things that seem like they don't square up. And also say, I'm gonna do better. I'm gonna go out there and educate myself about that. And I'm also gonna share with that with my neighbors. So that's what I think we need to do to get past this hyper-partisanship. Otherwise we're gonna be stuck here for a really long time and not be able to be like friends, You know, go out with each other, despite having huge policy differences, having despite, despite having huge ideological differences, we will never get past this moment if we don't say, hey, let's take this much we agree on together and fix as much of it as we can together, and then leave this other stuff for like the next step. You know, that's right. There's no rational way to do it. And and what media and corporations demand of us is that division. So it's up to us, right, each one of us to do to push back on that.
0: Right. Well, I just want to say um, that's exactly what we're trying to do here on Vince and Jason Save the Nation. I hope that our audience enjoyed this conversation. Three people with three different perspectives, um, and you know we like each other you know what i mean vince and i we we have dinner together our families know each other even though we have different perspectives and that's what we want we call America. each other in advance we coordinate our outfits so, yeah no it's yeah absolutely you you see <laughs> we, you know vince trying to copy my style i was
1: like oh you it's know? black t-shirt day i see I yeah yeah. I um,
0: the metal. <laughs> yeah so i mean you know and and i love this i love this uh this conversation between three people from three different ethnic backgrounds this is what america is this is what america looks like and this is you know three people with different perspectives having a conversation and talking and um that's what we need to do we encourage you to join our mission like subscribe watch us on youtube or facebook watch or anywhere podcasts are found um and hopefully we can actually save the nation peace